Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Jimmy Hoffa is a fixture in American mythology by now. The two-fisted Teamsters leader who vanished in 1975 in a murder plot that left not a trace of hard evidence. Still a mystery, still mesmerizing. Hoffa is a story that Martin Scorsese can tell one way this fall in yet another big movie called The Irishman, and that a Harvard Law professor out of Hoffa's extended family can tell very differently. Jack Goldsmith is our best source this radio hour. In effect, he is the stepson of Jimmy Hoffa's stepson. With his own history inside the federal justice machinery, that was part of Jimmy Hoffa's downfall. Jack Goldsmith's book about his stepfather, Chucky O'Brien, is titled In Hoffa's Shadow. Call it a fathers and sons love story on mafia power and FBI performance in this story. And second thoughts on the Kennedy brothers' rough, righteous war on Hoffa the man. In this hearing, it was Robert. Did you say that SOB, I'll break his back to anyone? Did you make that statement after these people testified before the committee? I never talked to either one of them after testifying. No, I'm not talking about uh, to them. Did you make that statement here in the hearing room after the testimony was finished? Not concerning them, far as I know of. Well, who did you make it about? I don't know. Then? I may have been discussing somebody in the figure of speech. Well, who did you make the statement? Whose back well, were you going to break? I don't even remember it. Well, whose back were you going to break, Mr. Hopper? Take your speech. I don't even know who I was talking about, and I don't know what you're talking about. Jimmy Hoffa had his own doctrine on toughness and winning. Well, you we guys? had our fights. There's no question about it. I don't deny it. I, I fought back to win. And I used whatever means I had to use to win, and I still do it. I don't believe there's any such thing as a half of a victory. Either you win or you lose, and I'm going to win. Jack Goldsmith admits with chagrin that he changed his name and threw his beloved stepfather under the bus to clear his own career path in the law and the U.S. Department of Justice. He got to be George W. Bush's assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel and became a critical in-house voice against surveillance and torture as practiced in the so-called War on Terror. Jack Goldsmith's disenchantment with government policy was setting in about the same time as re-enchantment with Chucky O'Brien, the stepfather who had been inseparable from Jimmy Hoffa for decades, but was also the FBI's prime suspect at the wheel of the car that delivered Jimmy Hoffa to his assassins. Chucky O'Brien is a very complicated man. He came into my life when I was 12 years old, and he was really the first real father I had and the only real father I had. Nobody trusted him except for Jimmy Hoffa and Anthony Giacalone. Jimmy Hoffa, this famous, outsized, hugely consequential labor leader in the 50s and 60s, Anthony Giacalone is a top mobster in Detroit. Can I say even before that, it fascinates me that he was a beautifully, symmetrically split character. His mother was Sicilian mob. His father was West Cork Irish mob, it sounds like, in Kansas City. So he had, he had crime on both sides of his, his own roots, but they didn't quite talk. Because he had an Irish name, he couldn't be a, right. a real member of the, and yet, the outfit. And yet he was, to his core, Sicilian. His Sicilian commitments were his real identity, and he always saw it that way. And th- though, as you say, he could never be a made man, he was he completely absorbed Sicilian values at a very young age. 
largely because his mother, whom he revered, drilled them into him, and that and he revered the old guys, as he put mm. it, the old the old mobsters in Kansas City, whom he knew growing up. Some very good advice there, including don't embellish, just tell them what happened, and second rule, don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. Just do what you're told. Exactly. And he, and he never asked questions when he was told by Hoffa or Jackaloni or some senior figure to do something. He was taught to do it without asking questions. Don't embellish. Just carry out the order. He kind of grew up around Hoffa. Since he was 18 or 19, he spent almost all of his waking hours with Hoffa. He uh, he spent weekends with Hoffa on the road. Once Hoffa became the president of the Teamsters, he was with him day and night. He woke him up. He put him to bed. He was at his trials. He was at the McClellan Committee. He wasn't the Robert Duvall character, even though the Robert Duvall character, Tom Hagen, was based on Chucky, according to Mario Puzo. That was a mistake by Puzo, because as you say, he wasn't a consigliere offering brilliant, wise advice. He would carry out any message or any order that Hoffa gave him. He says that to you, quote unquote, virtually in the book, that anything he asked me to do, I would have done. No questions asked. And, And that, for a man like Jimmy Hoffa, this was someone that he trusted completely. He knew his, Jimmy Hoffa was very close with Chucky's mother. He knew Chucky since he was a boy. He just trusted Chucky completely. Chucky said he would walk through a wall for Hoffa, and if Hoffa asked him to do that, he would. But Chucky was also a failure in the union. He was not great at labor organizing. Everybody except Chucky recognized this. Hoffa recognized this, right. but kept him close, not because he was any good at labor organizing, but because he was good at these other tasks. He was a truth stretcher, to put it nicely. He was always making mistakes. He had terrible judgment whenever he exercised judgment. He had terrible luck his whole life. Nothing ever worked out for him. Always in debt, it sounds like. Always in debt. He could never... This was true when I was a teenager. He was constantly broke. He was spending money he didn't have, giving away money he didn't have, promising things he couldn't deliver. So in, in sort of objectively speaking, he was not a terribly responsible person. But to me, he was a great father. And to Hoffa and Jackaloni, he was this very loyal aide. That's a paradox. Let me just say, Jack, you've totally persuaded me that he didn't have anything to do with killing Hoffa and wouldn't have anything to do. He would have killed himself rather than Hoffa. He would have taken a bullet for Hoffa. At the same time, he's such a sketchy character. Hoffa's daughter, Barbara, thought your man, uh, Chucky, was amoral, had no sense of right and wrong, and, I, and it's almost plausible. He did all sorts of things that he couldn't account for, or wouldn't want to account for, unreliable. People, best friends thought he was sort of pathological liar department, made things up. It adds a wonderful level of complexity to the story that this genuinely loving man, incredibly loving man, was also out of his own control somehow. I mean, I hate to say this, but he was a failure in just about everything else. He was, he was basically did two things well. He was great at expressing love, and he always wanted, that's really all he wanted to do is to love and be loved, and he was always looking to love and be loved, mm. often being disappointed in that. He succeeded with me and my family, but he often did not succeed in that. Uh, and the other thing he was very good at was carrying out these messages in mm. faithful adherence to what Hoffa and Jackaloni wanted. Basically, everything else in his life, professionally and personally, didn't go well. He didn't do well with his first with his the children from his first wife. That first marriage didn't go well. He beat up the wrong guy when he was trying to beat up the the, the man he thought was having an affair with his first wife. As you say, he was always in debt. You know, he had a sketchy life, and he often skirted the truth and skirted the law and couldn't really count for himself, as you say. Come back to your project uh, since 2012, Jack Goldsmith, to write this story. Many motives, partly to defend a man you loved, to get him out of the shadow, also to get a piece of history 
written, and also to, I don't know, rehabilitate himself in his own head. I thought when I started the project over seven years ago, my main goal was to figure out what Chucky knew about the disappearance and whether he was involved in it, because I suspected that he wasn't involved. And in that narrow goal, in, I think, clearing him from the charge that he picked up Hoffa and drove him to his death when Hoffa disappeared mysteriously from a parking lot in suburban Detroit, I believe that I, I think I demonstrate that Chucky did not do what he's been accused of in which every book and public FBI report and article and movie ever done on this disappearance has Chucky driving Hoffa to his death. So my narrow goal in demonstrating that he did not do that, I think I succeeded on. My other goal was kind of a dimmer goal, but an important goal was to make up to Chucky for the 20 years that previous, which in which I had basically blown him off during the kind of formative years of my professional life. I distanced myself from him in a way that hurt him enormously, in a way I did not appreciate at the time. In a you way, changed your name from his to my name. My original name. Dad. My original name was Jack Goldsmith. He adopted me. Chucky did when I was thirteen. When I graduated from college, I changed it back to Jack Goldsmith. That hurt him quite a lot. And then I didn't talk to him again, basically for twenty years, and that hurt him. It just devastated him, and I didn't appreciate this at all. Frankly, I didn't care, and I was just looking out for myself, and I had justified it to myself that this was the right thing for me to do and that it was justified. I had a complete rethinking of that 20 years later for a whole bunch of reasons and asked for his forgiveness, which he immediately gave me. And then I thought this guy who's had every bad turn against him, taken against him in terms of Hoffa disappearance, his career, just everything had gone wrong for him. I thought that if I wrote a book that was more credible and that tried to tell the truth, that it would you know, settle the account with him in some way because hopefully he would see that the work I did to exonerate him, I hoped that he would appreciate it. And I hoped that he would see it as an act of love to try to make up for what I did to him. I think it's news to most people of my generation that there is no specific evidence at all about what happened to Jimmy Hoffa on that day. Kind of astonishing. It's a complete mystery. And it's really, it's just completely astonishing. I mean, I... I got become very good friends with the four original FBI agents on the case from the 70s. Right. And they've been obsessed with it for 45 years. And we would, meeting after meeting, and we would always come back to this point. The closer you get to what actually happened that afternoon, there is zero evidence. Nothing. No evidence. We know that Hoffa called someone at 3.30 p.m. We know that Hoffa called someone at 2.15 p.m. We know that some people saw Hoffa at 2.45 p.m. That's all we know. There's literally no other evidence about what happened. This is incredible. Well, they found a hair of Hoffa's in a car that Chucky was driving, and that was the main piece of evidence against him, the main piece of evidence against Chucky. Now, it wasn't really evidence. This hair was found, and it wasn't really terribly probative in court. The car that Chucky was driving was picked up nine days after the disappearance. We don't know what happened in those nine days. There was a hair found that was later thought to be Hoffa's. It was later shown by a DNA test to, to almost certainly be Hoffa's. The question is, was that hair there because Hoffa was in the car? There was all sorts of other reasons when they examined the car to think Hoffa wasn't. His fingerprints weren't there, for example. Chucky's were. But the FBI came later to believe that, as you suggested, that this hair was transferred because we know that Anthony Giacalone, this big mobster who was probably the mastermind or at least involved in the disappearance, he was at Hoffa's house just before the disappearance laying a rug that was Hoffa's athletic rug. He moved the rug from one room to another. He got on his hands and knees. He laid it down. 
Hundreds of hairs would have gotten on his body, and he was in the car soon thereafter. So, and the FBI didn't figure this out till later. When I came across this independently, when I came across, I was reading a, an FBI report by Josephine Hoffa, who was Hoffa's wife, talking about how Jack Aloni laid the rug down. I immediately thought maybe that's how the hair got there, and then I later learned that that's what the FBI believed as well. But that's the only piece of evidence. There's, and that wasn't really probative evidence of what happened that afternoon, and there's literally nothing else. Coming up, the FBI as storyteller in the Hoffa case without evidence to back it up. This is Open Source. Jack Goldsmith's prism on Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance is colored by law and family with lessons and meanings, but no fresh clues in almost 45 years. According to his family, former Teamsters president Jimmy Hoffa is missing. The family made the missing persons report this morning after Hoffa failed to return to his home in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan last night. I want to cut to the main question of your project and sort of reverse engineer it. Your stepfather, Chucky, keeps telling you omerta, the Sicilian code is silent. We don't, we don't say anything By about way, certain kinds of things. He actually never used that word. Which omerta? Yeah. I mean, that's <clears throat> clearly what it was. He talked about it. He, he I'm absorbed. not a rat, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I don't, you know, just, I'm not going to talk to you about it, Jack. Don't ask me to. I can't do it. And I'm just not going to. And, I, and he talked to me about how he was taught this as a young man. It was really at the center of his brain. The detective in me wants to reverse engineer this whole story. And what was he not saying? What could he not say? What was the secret that would disgrace himself? Oh, he had many hundreds, probably thousands of secrets. Sorry, go ahead. But on the, on the big question, yeah. who killed Jimmy yeah. and who done it? My theory is that he had nothing more to tell you. You knew the whole story. We all know the whole story. You were not going to get it from his lips, but the answer was obvious and you had it right. Well, a couple of things on that. One, I figured out a lot of things. He struggled hard. As he said to me, I love you and I want to help you write a good book. And he struggled hard to tell me things right up to the margins of where he wasn't supposed to talk and you know, trying to get me to figure it out. So I learned a lot of things about the disappearance that he kind of later confirmed, especially about the run-up to the disappearance. I'm 100% convinced that he has no idea what happened that afternoon. I believe this for all the reasons that, uh, you know, about why I didn't think he was involved. And I also know that, that even though he knew the conspirators and knew them well, they never would have told him what happened. They knew he was talking to the FBI to try to clear his name. Chucky, although he was very loyal to them, he wasn't the brightest guy. He might have slipped up. They never in a million years would have told him anything about what happened that afternoon. He told me that. He said he didn't want to know, and he never learned. Right. And they do things in whispers and grunts and get it done or whatever in any event. But to me, the story is very, very clear that Hoffa, out of prison, barred by an agreement he had made with the Nixon White House from seeking even local office in the Teamsters again, was going crazy for nothing to do, being out of power, came to hate Fitzsimmons, who succeeded him, all that sort of thing. And he's just champing in the bit, trying to get some action. And you're basically going crazy. Yeah. And Chucky tried to warn him. 
Jimmy, you're out of line. Everybody did. Jimmy. And he started blabbing and started talking about the things I could tell you about the mob in this union. And the obvious thing, like, no, this is not allowed. Send him a message. Let Tony Pro in New Jersey, who's on the Teamster board, tell Tony Giacalone in Detroit, talk to Jimmy. I think it wasn't just Tony Pro. I think it was even higher than that. Exactly. But the point is, the commission, and they're like, you know, the General Motors board or any other, we've we've got a problem in Detroit, a guy that's going to bring everything down, speak to him, and then if not, he's gone. And he was gone. But obviously, the national board of the outfit decided. Tony Pro in New Jersey agreed. He told his man in Detroit, watch out, something's coming down. And your man Chucky tried to tell Jimmy, Jimmy, shut up, go but, away. But Hoffa didn't, did, yes, he did. So there's the story. Yeah, that's the story. So who said what to whom, <laughs> as they say, is details. Yes, I agree. But the question is, so we know what happens at the level of the conspiracy. I mean, I think that, and I think that I fill in a lot of details in that in the book. We, Beautifully. Every one of them interesting. We know what happened at the level of the conspiracy, all the way down to Anthony Giacalone in Detroit, I believe, and I think his brother as well, Vito Giacalone. What we don't know is who showed up at that parking lot that afternoon and what happened in that parking lot that afternoon. Now, the theory since 75... And I think this is what led the government astray completely. They, and basically the early investigators told me we latched on to the wrong theory. And that theory involved Chucky. And Chucky was actually a useful dupe for the mob because the government was so focused on him. And this was based largely on an informant in the East who turned out not to be credible. But the government was, they were desperate for leads. They didn't have any. And they were overwhelmed with informant information that they couldn't sort out. The early theory was people from the East came in and did this. Provenzano's guys came in and did this, and that Chucky was involved in picking them up or at least delivering Hoffa to these guys. And that's the theory that they focused on, and that is not what happened. What what the FBI thinks currently happened is, and this makes so much more sense about the way the mob would think about it, was the orders came from the East, and it was the local operation carried out by Detroit guys. And so the theory that the world knows for 44 years, which is based on 1976 memos that leaked and then books that repeated that story for 44 years, including mm. the Brandt book that's, a, that's the basis for the movie. The Scorsese movie. The Scorsese movie. That is just not the theory that the FBI currently believes. They have completely independent reasons. One of the other reasons they don't believe Chucky did it is because they think these other guys, these local Detroit guys, did it. Give the mob credit, maybe, for knowing how to pull off a perfect crime. There will be no witnesses. There will be, there will be no remains. There will be no nothing. I completely agree that it was a perfect crime. I've thought about this as much as anyone, and I've thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. I think there are a lot of things that happened that afternoon, if we knew what happened, that weren't supposed to happen. So much of the timeline doesn't make sense. I think it was luck. Jimmy Hoffa waited for an hour and a half in that parking lot. Amazing. Jimmy Hoffa himself, the biggest man in Detroit, standing out a re- in a restaurant parking lot. On the hottest lot. day of the year. Yep, for an hour and a half, 90 hour minutes. Where, where's Tony? Where's Tony? Waiting for the... Why? He would never wait for five minutes if someone was late. So that was a hugely important meeting. And Chucky told me this, that if Hoffa was waiting there, if he was even to go there in public to have a meeting like that, he must have thought this was hugely consequential for him. But then the killers don't show up. They don't show up for an, at least an hour and probably an hour and a half, which is an amazing screw-up if they're trying to commit the murder of the century. 
Then they show up. We have we don't know if Hoffa was hit on the head or shot and put in a car, or if he voluntarily got in a car. The FBI always thought he voluntarily got in a car, but only because they thought that he would have been seen if he were hit or something like that. But we literally don't know at all what happened. I just think that it yes, it was it turned out to be the perfect crime. But there's a lot about that afternoon that doesn't make sense. Another thing that doesn't make sense, Anthony Giacalone was the person that Hoffa was supposed to meet. Giacalone had an alibi that day. But why would Giacalone put himself as the bullseye, the target, that everyone would have immediately focused suspicion on if he was the guy that was the mastermind of the crime? They could have knocked off Hoffa any number of ways. They could have gone down to the lake. They could have done a drive-by shooting. This was a very elaborate and somewhat dangerous way to make Hoffa go. As you say, they pulled it off, but I think that there are all sorts of screw-ups, and I think they got lucky. That happens, you know. Okay, second question in the sort of reverse engineering of this whole story. Why cannot this story be resolved? Why is it not to this day? Like the Kennedy assassination, does it not have a satisfactory answer? Leaving the Kennedy question aside... It seems to me the reason this will never, ever be told is that we love pretty stories about great American institutions. And this is the unprettiest story of labor, of justice, of personal relations, of the Kennedys, of the free press. It's mob rule, and capital M mob rule, in the country in the 50s and 60s. It's also surveillance. I mean, Edward Snowden's worst nightmare was daily performance of the Kennedy Justice Department. We know of his surveillance of Martin Luther King. We didn't know that the whole Hoffa family, including, it seems, cousins and aunts and everybody, was under blanket bugging all the time. We didn't know, we didn't see the obsessive, vengeful, narrow piece of the Bobby Kennedy pursuit of Hoffa, We know he got Hoffa in the end, but it had nothing to do with his teamster work or his labor stuff. And yet we can't proclaim Hoffa a hero either because he was feisty, interesting, complex, driven, available to his workers as he was. A perfect romance of a labor leader. Uh, He was a thug, lived by the thug rules uh, every day of his life. Uh, It's a story that cannot be told about a self-respecting free society. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. The the lesson I learned in kind of summing up or extending what you just said in writing this book, you know, Bobby Kennedy, the liberal icon, the the uh, and the angel, he was a sinner. He had a lot of flaws, and he was a sinner. Jimmy Hoffa, the well-known thuggish, mobbed-up sinner, had angelic qualities. Chucky O'Brien. <laughs> he did have angelic. He this was, is why it is an unbelievably spellbinding but, but, book. But, but, but thank you. It also happened with me and Chucky. And I, I this is and I just this is something I learned from writing this book. When I was twenty one years old, twenty two or twenty three at Yale Law School, doing really well, um, I was convinced of my virtue and my career and that I was the good guy moving forward and that Chucky was the bad guy. The guy who was this mobbed-up guy who had associated with criminals his whole life, I had kind of forgotten what a wonderful father he was. And then 20 years later, when I'm in the Justice Department, up to my neck in illegal surveillance, I'm not so virtuous anymore. Certainly people in the outside world are treating me as not very virtuous at all. (laughs) And it turns out that the things Chucky had told me, Chucky the ignoramus that had told me about what was going on in the Justice Department, 
turned out to absolutely be right. So for me, the lesson, the bigger lesson here is that we're all sinners and all have good qualities and very bad qualities. And that's, a for me, and a very important lesson from this book. Give us a piece of um, Chucky Uncensored on those guys at the FBI, what they do to you, and the way they can ruin you in the print without ever getting you near an indictment, that kind of thing. Yes, he, he the press was in bed with with the government, which it was. Bobby Kennedy and the press were completely Still is in, in bed so with many him. ways. Exactly. We've seen it here in the in the yeah. Whitey Bulger story. Yeah. The FBI could leak absolutely anything. They could make a saint out of Whitey Bulger. Right. Puts most of the money in the in the right. poor box kind of thing when they liked him, and then he can make he can be the embodiment of kind of nuclear evil yeah. when they change their mind. And nobody has a check on it. No, has a check on it. And I have to say one of the many, I will use the word shocking things to me, was to read the government leaks about Chucky over the years and what the government was confident it had and how it was going to do this to him and was going to indict him and had this evidence. That These are the leaks in the papers. And then to read the internal documents that just say exactly the opposite. We have no evidence. We can't prosecute this guy. The evidence isn't holding up. And it was just all lies to try to pressure him into talking or pressure the mob into pressuring him, maybe threatening to kill him, causing him to talk. So that happened a lot. The one thing that you you asked me about Chucky's colorful takes on the government, the phrase he used that really stuck in my mind, he used this as a teenager. I didn't understand it. It was before I was a lawyer. Hmm. He didn't even fully understand what he meant, but he had the basic intuition. He said, the government's got backup. I love that word. you got to unfold that. Yeah, backup was Chucky's word. What Chucky meant by that was he experienced, let's just posit that Chucky was a serial criminal lawbreaker like Hoffa. I mean, he was violating the law all the time. Chucky, In Chucky's mind, his self-justification was, well, the government's doing it too, and we're in a war, and that's the way the world works. He said that the government has backup, by which he meant that the government, when they're pursuing us and going after us to enforce the law, they're cutting corners and breaking the law and interpreting things away so that they can do whatever they want to us. Mm. He called it backup. I learned in the course of my time in the government and in writing this book that there is such a thing as backup, and it is a persistent feature of you know, Justice Department operations. Explain uh, just how that works in yeah. the present day, for example. Well, I'll give you two examples. One, surveillance is the best context. Right. Um, you know, we've, we've heard a lot in the last 15 years about secret law. And this is the secret idea. Law. Secret law. The idea is that the Justice Department does secret legal interpretations that allow them to do things that the public would not approve of and would not think is a sound interpretation of the law. This was going on in the 50s and 60s, before and during the Kennedy administration when they were doing all the illegal surveillance you talked about. The most unconvincing legal opinions from the Justice Department, just conclusory, poor, weak analysis, distinguishing Supreme Court cases that clearly said you can't break in to bug people. Clearly said that, and they continued to do it because the Attorney General signed off on it, on an unconvincing opinion that the world never saw until the church committee 10 or 15 years later. Mm. And something like that was going on again after 9-11 with all of the aggressive interpretations uh, that the government gave to allow it to go after the newest enemy with them, which was, by that point, the terrorists. So, you know, this is something that Chucky taught me and something that I learned and mm. conceptualized when I was in the government due to his driving this into my head when I was a teenager. The present-day example is your own experience of surveillance 
in the Bush administration on which you blew a whistle. So I wouldn't say I blew a whistle. That I mean, I was charged with reproving this very highly classified, very important surveillance program. Stellar Wind was the name of the program. Right. Uh, that a, a phrase that I was highly classified at the time. I never thought I would be able to utter it, but here we are in 2019, and I'm uttering it probably because of Edward Snowden. Um, the the problem, the program was just screwed up from top to bottom. It was misdescribed. The legal analysis was weak. I was supposed to approve this thing, and every six weeks I, I inherited the job that was supposed to approve this thing, and I found all these problems. It was a completely unprecedented situation in the sense that no one ever rethinks a legal authorization in the middle of the program, in the middle of a war. You just continue it once it's been decided. I did rethink it. I ended up basically disapproving or not approving half of it. I approved the other half. And that approval of the other half of the program, that was, I wouldn't call it a stretch, but that was, I had to push myself to approve that part of it. And in that sense... I was doing the same kind of opportunistic interpretation that Chucky was complaining about. I was offering backup. The main point is I, ironically, it's not even strong enough a word, was in the Justice Department involved in legal interpretations of surveillance, doing the very things that were happening as a basis to illegally surveil Chucky 50 years earlier. And Chucky's criticisms and his denunciations of Bobby Kennedy were kind of ringing in my ears as I was doing this. This is at a time when I hadn't talked to him in 20 years, and it was the beginning of my rethinking of him. Jack, one question that strikes a lot of readers, I think, in your book is, is the power of that mob, the connectedness, and the same names that come up in the JFK assassination. You suddenly think, wait a sec, they had the people, the motives, the means to have done that crime. I've always thought if the mob had killed Kennedy, they would have been found out and they would have been punished for it. What do you think? Dare I ask, what does Chucky think is the right. story of the Kennedy assassination? Right. So many mobsters right. in Detroit, including yep. Jack Ruby. There's such a fascinating overlap of names here. Here's what I concluded. So the original Warren Commission, they didn't look at the mob angle enough, and it was part of the great conspiracy about the Warren Commission that they kind of neglected the mob angle compared to what they should have, because there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. You know, Ruby was related to Chicago mob figures. He was known by Hoffa and everybody else in Detroit. Chucky knew Jack Ruby. The better job was done by the House Committee in the 80s. They did a complete redo of the Kennedy assassination, and they focused especially on Hoffa and the mob. And they basically concluded what you just said. They had the motive, they had the means, but there just wasn't evidence to show that they were involved. Now, they didn't rule it out, but they, they looked at it as thoroughly as anyone could have, and they, they didn't rule it out. Chucky said, and I believe him on this, he said Toffa was involved in some things related to the Kennedys, especially the Bay of Pigs invasion, in helping indirectly to supply some of the really? planes and equipment. But he said Hoffa, to his knowledge, and Chucky would have known, had nothing to do with that. I just found not a single piece of evidence to suggest that Hoffa was involved. And Chucky said that he absolutely wasn't. Coming up, lasting, largely unintended effects of those Hoffa wars on a mobbed-up America. This is Open Source. 
The Hoffa years unfolded in what seems now a different country. In Jack Goldsmith's informed version of events, mafia power was entrenched and widely tolerated, for example. The mostly unmobbed union movement had real power then, and illegal surveillance was standard government practice. Real life was more like a David Mamet script, as in Hoffa the movie, with Jack Nicholson from 1992. Forget about the subpoena. Jimmy, the one thing you cannot do is square off with the White House. Square off with the White House? Then they don't square off with me. You follow me? Don't tell me who I can square off with. Don't use words with me. Jack Goldsmith, you bring so much alive that was that we all sort of knew. Edward Bennett Williams as Hoffa's lawyer, bringing Joe Lewis, the late great heavyweight champion, just to come by, say hello to the jury when he had Hoffa on trial. The, the, the all-black jury in Washington, D.C. And the case was over. I remember a story that's not in your book about Jimmy Hoffa challenging Bobby Hennedy to push up the contest right here and now. Let's go. Right. And they did it. And they each did like 30 or 50 push-ups. They, they were in many ways alike. They were childish about sports. They were kind of, I'm better than you are, and I'm smarter than you are, and I'm stronger than you are. And, you know, they, they had these amazing similarities. They both wore white socks with their suits. They both had mercurial personalities. They were both moralistic. They were amazingly alike, except for the fact that they were completely different. <laughs> Speak of Hoffa, how he did it. He assembled, after all the biggest union in the country, over 2 million members at the max, I mm -hmm. think, Yep. started from 299, local 299 in Detroit, which becomes so alive, that whole city. But what was his secret? He was an organizer, and you say he would tell guys on the street, you got a problem on your contract? Here's my number. Call yep. me. Right. And they did. He spent all of his waking hours practically with the men and women of the union. Every single weekend, even when he was president, he would travel around the country to local unions. This is something, I don't know if he did it instinctively or instrumentally, but this is where his power was, and he spent time with the members of the union. Often he was telling them hard news like, you're going to have to go slow on this contract here so we can get it up there. You have to trust me. He did a lot of that. He was explaining what was going on to them. He was living with them, hanging out with them, and he gave his number away. He was their hero. So he had this base of support, despite all the criticisms from the government, he had this base of support. Why did he have this base of support? In addition to spending so much time with them and caring about them so much, he was bringing home the bacon. He was brilliant at figuring out how to use transportation routes and trucking and warehouse control over transportation routes to bring economic leverage against both trucking companies and employers to basically raise wages and benefits for the Teamsters enormously. He had complete mastery over the trucking companies because, as Chucky taught me, he knew their business better than they did. He knew mm -hmm. trucking economics and routes better than they did, and he knew all of their foibles, their personal foibles, who they were screwing around with, who was going to get tired of the negotiation, who was going to get drunk, who was going to get mm -hmm. cold. And third, he had this vision and it was an autocratic vision. The Teamsters were a decentralized union, and one of the things that held them back was they couldn't bargain at a national level, which would have given them much more leverage. So Hoffa, over a couple of decades, basically clamped down on the local barons and asserted power in himself, and he basically became an autocrat or dictator of the union, which he used to assort enormous economic power against the trucking companies to get these amazing deals. And so famously in 1964, he got a national 
trucking compact. It was the famous labor agreement just before he went on trial to go to jail. Right. That but even after Bobby had beat him up for months years. in the McClellan hearings in years. the 50s. Years. Bobby had been going after him since 57. And it was relentless and brutal. Bobby at the time was the chief investigator of something called the McClellan Committee, mm-hmm. Senator McClellan from Arkansas. It was a joint Senate committee designed to look into labor racketeering. It was Bobby's idea. Bobby led it. And Bobby and modeled on the Kefauver hearings. Modeled on Kefauver because Bobby thought Kefauver rose to national prominence by doing that in the early fifties. I can do the same thing for myself and my brother Jack. Jack was on the McClellan committee. This is a strike-breaking union-busting bill. In my well, opinion, Mr. Harper, this bill is not a strike-breaking union-busting bill. You're the best argument I know for it. Your testimony here this afternoon. Your complete indifference to the fact that numerous people who hold responsible positions in your union come before this committee and take the Fifth Amendment because an honest answer might tend to incriminate them. Your complete indifference to it, I think, makes this bill essential. He and Hoffa went after it in really an amazing way, just toe-to-toe. Everybody, almost everybody took the Fifth Amendment. Hoffa advised everybody to take the Fifth Amendment. Ever Bennett Williams advised Hoffa to take the Fifth Amendment, but Hoffa was not going to get up there, and Mm. he would never admit wrongdoing. He was going to get up there and go toe-to-toe with Kennedy, and he did, and he essentially won. Now, Kennedy painted a picture of Hoffa as corrupt. Hoffa was corrupt in, in, in every conventional sense, and he allowed that picture to you know, basically linger. He couldn't defeat it, although he tried. Meantime, he's a bit of a prude. He's faithful. He doesn't drink. He doesn't know why people go to Las Vegas, although he built Las Vegas right. with with his yeah. union funds. One of my favorite scenes, if I could just say, is sure. Hoffa going out for uh, the opening of one of his casinos. And he goes to this fancy, debauched celebration, and everybody around him is drunk and carousing and carrying on, and there were scantily clad waiters and waitresses, and Hoffa was bored to death. But when he was at his <laughs> he was at his happiest was when the day before he was on his hands and knees with the workers, screwing in, you know, electrical outlets and things like that. I mean, he really believed in the union work, and he didn't go in for any of that other kind of stuff. Meantime, according to Chucky, Hoffa would complain about the Italian and the mob guy. Why do they have to kiss each other? What, what's all this, you know... Hoffa has this reputation as this mobbed-up guy. He was, well, he was mobbed well, he, well, he was mobbed up in two senses. One, he did business with them at arm's length when they controlled some of his unions before he got there. And he did a lot of business with them on the pension fund to his enormous benefit. He had no compunction about doing business with them for the same reason he had no compunction about paying off judges and politicians. He viewed the legal system from his early days on picket lines when he was getting his head beaten in in the 1930s as completely corrupt. He thought it was rigged against the union, and his basic view was, anything I can do to increase my power to help my members, I don't care what it is. I quote Chucky as saying, as Hoffa saying, I would do business with Hitler if I thought it would help my union. People have forgotten a period in this country when the mob was everywhere and got a kind of latitude, if not respect. Yeah, one of the many things I learned is the extent to which from the 20s, but especially after Prohibition, until about the 70s, the mob was this extraordinarily powerful force in this country, not very well known. The mob had just amazing control over the underground economy and were making literally billions of dollars. And they were controlling unions all over the place and they were controlling employers all over the place, usually in the lower reaches. Of course, they had legitimate businesses on the side and the the like. But they were this huge force. And by the way, I've been hard on Bobby, but Bobby figured this out. 
Bobby was one of the first people to realize what a very powerful and corrosive force the combination of the mob and the unions could be in the country. Now, he painted with too broad a brush, and he damned all of labor, but he was right. It was gradually understood in the 50s and the 60s. It wasn't until, and again, and there were reports about this in the 60s, and, but, and the government was getting more legal tools, but they didn't really go after them because they didn't really understand it. They didn't understand how it worked. They had some intelligence through these illegal bugs. One of the other things I learned in writing this book was it was the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, which gave the FBI an opportunity, indeed forced them to throw massive resources in trying to figure out what happened. And in the course of trying to figure out what happened to Hoffa, they uncovered this massive conspiracy and organization between labor and the mob. One of the memos, the secret memos I quote in the book said, you know, in 1975, and we've uncovered these incredible relationships, mm. these, these relationships just deepened and deepened and deepened throughout the 60s. Talk about ironies. The removal of Hoffa from the Teamsters and handing it to Frank Fitzsimmons seems to have given the mob really the upper hand. It did. Which they didn't have under Hoffa. Right. Bobby didn't really understand the mob, and he didn't understand Hoffa's relationship to it. It's not surprising that he didn't. While Hoffa had all these relations with the mob, he had the upper hand, especially on the pension fund. Turned them down on loans. Often turned them down on loans. Chucky said he had to give $50,000 up front just to be considered, and you didn't get the money back if he said no, and he often said no. And Hoffa pocketed that, in addition to the points he got when he did give the loan. And Hoffa often said no, and he said no because he just made a business judgment about whether he thought it was a good or bad idea. And the mob lived with that, and they were on the whole happy about it. These illegal mm. recordings that I uncovered from the early 60s have these mobsters saying, how can we get these loans from Hoffa? And they were really dependent on these loans to get these big casinos. They couldn't get ownership of these casinos. Mm. They couldn't build the casinos with a bank loan. And these casinos were cash cows, and Hoffa was financing them. The cash piece of this story is incredible. It is. Including the moment when... Nixon wants to get Hoffa out of jail, but not back into business. So they right. have a conditional pardon, so to speak. Right. But, oh, by the way, we need a million bucks in cash, right. too. There's always been rumors about a payoff, and they've a lot of people have said there was a payoff. A lot of people have taken credit for a payoff. I believe Chucky's story. Nixon had been putting off letting Hoffa out of prison. Hoffa was going crazy. Nixon kept raising the price, so to speak. Hoffa was desperate to get out. He was literally going mad in prison. Part of the final deal was a million-dollar payment, and the payment came out of from Hoffa's funds. And Hoffa had, according to Chucky, tens of millions in cash. I believe him because of all the, all the Las Vegas skims, all the side payments on the loans. Hoffa had deals all over the place in cash, and he had rafters full of cash. So a million dollars of Hoffa's money was part of the deal to get Hoffa out of jail. Chucky gets a call from Fitzsimmons, who was the president of the Teamsters at the time, saying, come to Washington. He goes to Fitzsimmons' office, and he goes, he's going to get out, and it's going to cost us this much, and he raised a single finger. Chucky didn't fully know what that meant, but the next day he gets a call from Fitzsimmons' secretary saying that you left your briefcase here. Please come pick it up. He went and picked up this briefcase. She handed him a note for the Madison Hotel with the room number on it. Chucky waited for 15 minutes in his hotel. He actually opened the bag. He said it's the first time in his life that he didn't carry out the task, no questions asked, because he was afraid he was being set up because he didn't trust Fitzsimmons at the time. Saw the cash in the bag, took it to the Madison Hotel, to the whatever floor, he doesn't remember what floor, and dropped off the bag. And Hoffa was relieved. The door was opened? 
He the room the was door. dark. The room was dark. A hand came out. <laughs> he gave him the bag, and that was it. And Hoffa was released two weeks later. We don't know for sure what happened with that million dollars. They think when Nixon was later saying in that famous exchange with Dean in the White House, I know where I can get a million dollars. I now think they were referring back to this payment. That money may well have gone to uh, pay off Watergate people, but it probably went to the Nixon reelection campaign because the Watergate money, the payoffs in Watergate were all accounted for. Come back to the cash, but the guy who didn't gamble building Las Vegas. They built Las Vegas. I mean, literally, Jimmy Hoffa built Las Vegas. It was the night before he died, Hoffa calls Morris Schenker, and he was very agitated. Morris Schenker was a lawyer from St. Louis who was a facilitator for some of these loans. He ended up running one of the casinos in Las Vegas. And Hoffa was agitated, and something was on his mind. And he told Schenker, I'm coming out to Vegas in a couple of weeks. Can you get me a reservation? Schenker was shocked when Hoffa said this. He goes, Jimmy, are you kidding me? You built Las Vegas. You can come in this town and stay in any room you want. He literally literally financed the building, the 50s expansion of Vegas. There were all sorts of skims coming off of that, going to mob and mobbed up labor unions and to Jimmy Hoffa. It was a huge, huge cash cow. What was going on in Jimmy Hoffa's head in that last period? He's out of jail but going nuts at the lake for nothing to do. It sounds like a man coming apart in retirement, so to speak, forced retirement, but was the more, could it have been prevented? I don't think so. I actually think that, according to Chucky, Hoffa went slightly mad, if not mad, in jail. I mean, this is a guy who was the champion of the universe, who suddenly found himself for five and a half years in a five-by-seven cell, spending all day stuffing mattresses with no control and no way out. And Chucky said he just slowly went crazy in jail. He surely must have commanded respect in prison, though. He did, and he was taken care of, for the most part, by the mobsters there. His days, eight or nine hours a day, was in a little room beating a mattress. And his cell was this tiny little cell, you know, just five by seven cell. It was nothing. So most of his day was in confinement with nothing to do, no control, no power, watching his union out there being run in a way he didn't appreciate. Then he gets out after this giant payoff. There's this condition placed on his commutation. He's going to have to stay out of of the real work. He spent the next five years desperately trying to get around this condition. He tried to pay people off to eliminate it, to get a pardon. He brought a lawsuit to try to get rid of the condition. He started violating the condition, and he almost went back to jail because he was violating the condition. It became clear to him by sometime in 1974 that it just wasn't going to happen. He just lost it because he desperately wanted his union back. He built this thing. It's his whole life, his whole identity, everything was in this union. It was being run by this guy he hated who double-crossed him. He had paid a million dollars and lost his million dollars. It had this condition. And he basically decided at some point, you know, Chucky says he got crazy, he got nuts. He decided at some point, and it was irrational because it couldn't help him get his union back, that he was going to bring Fitzsimmons down and the mob down and everything down. So he starts blabbing and increasingly raising the temperature, first about Fitzsimmons and then about Fitzsimmons' relationship with the mob. This went on for much longer than people realize. It wasn't just an overnight thing that the mob decides they have to get rid of him. They knew they had a problem for six, eight, ten months, and they tried and tried and tried to calm him down and assuage him, and they couldn't, and he kept turning up the heat. And that's finally what got him killed, and frankly, it was completely predictable that he was going to be killed. And one of the mysteries is, 
was Hoffa suicidal? Did he think he was immune from this? Chucky, when I asked him this question, sometimes said that he was just so angry at Fitzsimmons he was irrational. Other times, Chucky says he just thought that he was above it all and they wouldn't dare do anything to him. Oh. Jack Goldsmith, it's an amazing yarn, and it gave me a kind of fever of excitement about what we don't know about our own country. In the net, unions like Jimmy Hoffa's Teamsters are history. So is the mob, maybe. Yep. Are we better off today? I do think we are better off for the mob basically being decimated. The mob still exists, but it's a shadow of its former self. And it's a shadow of its former self because the government developed the tools and got extremely aggressive, basically broke the back of Omerta. People started talking because they had long jail cells, because they could go off into witness protection. The later generations weren't as disciplined. And, and how about unions? Now, it depends on what you think about unions. My views about unions have changed over the course of my life. And I just see it as an unambiguously bad for the country what the decimation of labor unions represent. Because basically it's gone from a 33 35% right. of workers were in unions to something like in the private sector, 7 or 8%. And unions are so much weaker than they used to be, so much more consequential. One of the juxtapositions between Hoffa's world and today's world is unions were huge then. Labor union leaders were in the news every day. Hoffa was a national figure. You can't name a national labor figure today. They're just not consequential. Unions aren't consequential. I was surprised to find out that James P. Hoffa, son of, yeah. is, is head of the team. Yeah. I couldn't have guessed. Yeah, because it's just not a consequential force anymore. The decline of unions is obviously one sign of the massive inequality in this country and one sign of relative worker weakness. Jack Osman, I can't admire you or this book enough. It's a sensational read. I want to keep you in our circle. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. That was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Jack Goldsmith's book is called In Hoffa's Shadow. You can hear more of our conversation with Jack Goldsmith about surveillance, the FBI, and the Justice Department in our own 2019 political moment on our website, radioopensource.org. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our mobster. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.